0: Today we're continuing our teaching series that we've called "Equipped for the Battle. And the reason we've used that title, and, and remember the reason scripture tells us we need to be equipped, is because scripture says, the authentic Christian life is a fight. In fact, the Apostle Paul, he gives a description of that fight in the passage we're looking at in this series, in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians 6. If you want to turn there with me, if you have your Bible with you or a Bible app, I'd encourage you to bring either. I personally prefer the hard copy, but go with whatever works for you in this. In Ephesians 6, and as we come to it, remember, this is the word of God. And Paul wrote this, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle, we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, in light of that battle, Take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, we're kind of working our way through this guidance that was given by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul. And specifically, we're beginning to look at these six pieces of spiritual armor that Paul said each one of us needs to clothe ourselves, arm ourselves with, for the spiritual battle that we walk in, that we face day by day. And so we're just asking, okay, how do we live this out? And last weekend, if you recall, we looked at the first piece of armor, which was really kind of the foundation piece of the rest of the armament, and it's that belt of truth, And in fact, if you weren't here with us, I encourage you to go to our website to watch or listen to that teaching. Be helpful to know that as we continue on in our series. And so then this week, we look at the second piece of armor. What Paul calls in verse 14, this breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness. And so really three main questions are going to lead us through our study day. First, I want to just consider, so what is a breastplate that Paul refers to here? Secondly, what is the righteousness with which we're supposed to arm ourselves? And then just thirdly, how do we put it on? All right, three questions. Let's just start with the first one. Okay, so what was a breastplate in that day? Now, even that term, breastplate of righteousness, it was actually first used in Scripture in the book of Isaiah. We looked at this last weekend. In Isaiah 59, it speaks of God putting on his armor and coming to battle for justice, bringing judgment. And so we read this in Isaiah 59:17. God put on righteousness as a breastplate. Now I wanted us to see that again this week because as we noted last weekend, that just reminds us that this armor we're supposed to put on, it's God's armor. He graces us, he blesses us with his armor. Now back in Ephesians 6, that word breastplate in the original Greek, you actually know that Greek word. That Greek word is thorax. Say it with me. Hey, we know that word. We know a Greek word. All right, good for that. Because we, it's that medical term that simply refers to kind of the chest area, kind of from the neck down to the abdomen. And, and so understand that the Roman soldiers' breastplate, their thorax, covered the body, really from, in that case, from the neck down to the thighs. And it was also known as the heart protector. Because in military battle, you, you don't want to get cut in the arm. You don't want to get cut in the leg you really don't want to be cutting any limb, right? Cuz it's cut, that could be a debilitating wound. But wounds to your vital organs, like to your heart, that's not just debilitating. That's deadly. And those vital organs are what the breastplate of righteousness covers. The breastplate covers your heart. Now most of you know that today when we kind of refer or talk about the center of our personality, the the seat of our deepest feelings, our deepest motives, our, our deepest thoughts, we often refer to that as our heart, right? So that's why we ask people, if they're in a moment of discernment, what is your heart telling you about this, right? That's what we do. I mean, for some reason, we identify the center of our personality as the heart. And it's not that we really think that physically, necessarily, that's where the soul is. But we tend to just identify it with the heart. What's interesting is, the ancients, though, the Greeks and Romans in biblical times, they didn't talk about the center of the feelings and the personality as being in the heart. And and that actually creates some interesting challenges for biblical translators, because literally... Often, when you read a biblical writer saying, I I feel this in my heart, or the spirit is in my heart, or my heart is turned within me, the English translators have actually inserted that word heart in there. But what the original biblical writers often actually wrote was, I feel it in my splanknon. Want to say it with me? (laughs) Splanknon, I guess. Okay, sure. So we asked the question, okay, that's what I actually wrote. Well, what's a splanknon? Splanknon, that was your bowels, your intestines. So understand, often in the Bible, when it talks about, I love you from my heart, what it's actually written in, in the original language is, I love you from my bowels. <laughs> I know, don't use that anywhere. In fact, interesting, there's a place in Jeremiah 31 where it says, God said my heart yearns for Ephraim. That's the English translation. The original Hebrew literally says, my bowels roar for Ephraim. The English translators knew you'd laugh at that. Because to us, bowels aren't the place of love in your soul, right? Bowels roaring means something very different (laughs) today. Not love. So they wisely, they they just put heart in there. Okay, so the point is, when the ancients talked about the bowels, the abdomen, as the seat of our emotion, that's what they were referring to. And and the point for us today is that, that the breastplate of righteousness, again, whether you're a modern North American or whether you're in ancient times, biblical times, that breastplate covers and protects the seat of your emotions. The seat of your deepest feelings about yourself. And what makes your emotions so deep are your deepest beliefs, your motives, your feelings about yourself. So when Paul talks in verse 14 here about the breastplate, he's kind of bringing the question. So how are you going to protect that essential part of who you are? What you believe, your deepest convictions your identity. That's what he's speaking of. I mean, what Paul is saying is that the breastplate is what protects the most vulnerable of all parts of your personality, the heart, the center, how you feel about yourself, how you feel about the world, the core sense of identity. And I'll tell you this, some of you are so vulnerable there, So the question really is, what are you going to do in order to protect the most vital and sensitive area in in your life? And what is your breastplate going to be? What is it for you? And Paul says, in Christ, our breastplate must be righteousness. So our second question then Okay, what does that mean? What righteousness is Paul talking about here that covers and protects the essential, the core of who you are and what you believe? I mean, and then we ask, rightly ask, okay, what does righteousness mean in the Bible? I mean, what's righteousness? I mean, in in the Bible, the word righteousness means something very different than what it commonly means in our day, right? Because in our day, someone who's referred to as righteous, typically, it's meaning that they're condescending or rigid in some way, typically, I would think, unless they're a surfer, which is true. If a surfer says that something or someone is righteous, they mean it's amazing. Like if a wave is righteous, it's like amazing, dude. That's what it means, translated. Okay, but understand, in our day, we don't use the word righteous or righteousness in that same way that it's used in Scripture. So, so let's do this. You could say this. In the Bible, righteousness means kind of simply To be in right standing with someone. To be in right relationship. You could say it means to be fully presentable to someone. To be righteous means, in some sense, that you've passed inspection. In the eyes of a significant other. I I have been found pleasing to someone who I want to please. That's what righteousness means. I mean, it has none of the kind of connotation of being self righteous or rigid or proud or arrogant, holier than thou, than it typically means in our day. I mean, the word righteous means to just be right with, it means to be reconciled to somebody. And understand this it doesn't just mean, well, there's no gripes between us. Far beyond that, it means to be fully pleasing in someone's sight. Catch that? Fully presentable to another. So with that understanding, let's think about this. That is extremely important to every one of us. I mean, if you understand this, you realize that our longing for righteousness, man, that's not just some abstract theological thing. something that each one of us struggles with every day. If it's true that righteousness is kind of being up to specs, passing muster, kind of being up to standard, fully pleasing to somebody I want to please. I mean, you'll start to understand that actually every one of us finds our lives typically driven by that driven by the longing to be viewed as measuring up, as fully reaching the standard of some one or some group. I'll tell you, psychologists and counselors would affirm that is commonly what drives us, that longing within us. Okay, so with that understanding, let's come back to Ephesians 6, verse 14. And, and understand this, in contrast to what we read in Isaiah 59, where God puts on a breastplate to come in judgment. Ephesians 6 isn't talking about judgment. And, but the fact that we, as new beings in Christ, what Paul's just referred to early in Ephesians, are created to be like God, which is a stunning phrase. I mean, look at this. This Earlier in Ephesians, Paul wrote about this. Ephesians 4, verse 22. Listen to what Paul wrote. Put off your old self, which it belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self, created after what? The likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Meaning in Christ, you are created to have the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness. So in one sense, this putting on of the breastplate of righteousness, it means that that as Christ followers, we're to reflect the righteous character of God in in the way we live. We're to reflect in our action God's quality of character. In in fact, look at this, Ephesians 5, just right before our passage today. In verse 8, it says this, for one time you were darkness, but now you're what? You are light in the world. That's who you are in Christ in this world. You are light in the world, so walk that way. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right, righteous and true. So again, we read this and go, okay, in one sense, Paul's saying that part of the church's kind of just basic equipment in the spiritual battle is personal integrity, righteous living. And I'll tell you, many scholars suggests that that's Paul's primary point here. In other words, they say, arm yourself with godly life and righteous character. I'll tell you, I could take you to many commentators and many commentaries that that say what Paul is saying in Ephesians 6.14 is that the primary way for you to protect your heart, your identity, is by living lives of moral righteousness and, and rectitude and integrity. In fact, some of your English translations might even translate verse 14 as put on the breastplate of integrity. Some translate it that way. And again, we know this. That exhortation that for you and me to live Christ-exalting lives of integrity, I mean, that's an exhortation clearly that's repeated throughout the New Testament. And, and so it's really appropriate for us to each consider today. Am I living in a way that reflects the righteous character, integrity of God to reflect on. Are there areas in my life where I, I am clearly and consistently defying or disobeying God, living against what He desired me? I mean, those are very fitting, needed questions for us to reflect on regularly, friends, in this life we journey in. Because integrity I mean, it's tremendously important when it comes to dealing with troubles and suffering and persecutions in life. I mean, you need integrity if you're going to deal with the battles of life. And I would guess it. I would guess there are plenty of us here who have this very problem. Maybe you claim to be a follower of Jesus. Maybe you've taken on yourself the, the name of Jesus. You tell yourself, I'm a Christ follower. But in a particular area of your life, you're just living in Blatant contradiction of what the Bible said a Christ follower is. And really, no wonder you can't deal with your troubles. No wonder you can't kind of stand firm in the challenging evil days. I mean, I would guess a number of you are facing that very thing. And really, that's part of or an implication of what Paul is saying here. But I want to be so clear on this. That's not the essence of what Paul is talking about here in verse 14. And let me explain why. Because what Paul is saying here is that the way to protect yourself from our spiritual enemy. So he's talking about Satan, the spiritual forces around us. It's talking here about spiritual warfare against the devil and those forces of evil that are even in the heavenly realms. Paul is saying the way to deal with our enemy is through the breastplate of righteousness. Right? That's what he's saying here. And I think we could say this. Based on a teaching, or really the breadth of Scripture... I am pretty confident that by righteousness, Paul is not primarily talking about your personal integrity. Because as one writer puts it, friends, if you try to deal with the accusations of Satan by pointing to your personal integrity, he will have you for lunch. Know that. I mean, do you remember what that word Satan means? We looked at this in a previous series, maybe you weren't here with us, but that word or title, Satan, in the original Hebrew in the Old Testament, it literally means accuser. Maybe to put it in modern terms, it means a prosecutor. Jesus called Satan the father of lies. And and that's why we noted that according to God's word, demonic influence in our life, it operates in your life, by trying to just suddenly destroy your self-confidence, bury you in a sense of shame, and destroy your identity by accusing you and showing you and convincing you, man, what a rotten person you are, so that you doubt your identity in Christ, and so that with that shame or whatever, you perhaps drift from God, turn from God in your life with him. That that happens so that you believe his lies, his accusations. And, and therefore, then you try to find hope and maybe meaning and purpose and identity in life in something other than God himself. Just want us to be really clear today, that's the enemy's tactics. So, the breastplate here in verse 14, it's Paul's way of talking about the fact we all have to have a righteousness to cover our hearts. We have to have some way of defending ourselves against accusation, against lies. I mean, so when you fail, when people accuse you, when people reject you, how do you defend yourself? I mean, what is your breastplate? What is your identity? What do you cover yourself with? What do you protect yourself with? What do you use to make yourself feel maybe capable or presentable in life? What do you look to? You know, in the Genesis story in the Garden of Eden, it it, it says that when Adam and Eve sinned against God, we're told that they realized their nakedness before God. I mean, to put it another way, they realized their unpresentability before God. They realized their shame. They realized their guilt. And so to try to cover their shame, to cover their sin, to cover their unpresentability, they cover themselves with What? Fig leaves. Understand this. Fig leaves became their breastplate. Sounds kind of ridiculous, right? And the thing is, we all have a problem of feeling unpresentable and deeply, desperately seeking to be presentable, to be fully pleasing to someone, to be examined and approved, affirmed by somebody. Whether that person be God, or maybe it's your parents, someone you love perhaps, by your children, by your boss, or whoever's opinion of you, you value or drives you most in life. Every one of us longs for that. So ask, how do you look yourself in the mirror? How do you... Convince yourself that you're presentable. What, what do you say? I mean, do you say, well, I'm good to my family? Or, well, I've done well in my career? Or maybe it's, well, I'm a more moral person than most people. I don't do this or that that I know most people do. If that's what you do, understand that's your breastplate, that's your covering of fig leaves, that's your identity. And that's the problem. Because that, regardless of how much personal integrity or hard character you have, it's not near enough. So, all of that to say, I don't think that Paul's main point here in verse 14 is to say, in this spiritual battle, arm yourself with your personal integrity and righteous character. Again, That's how we need to be living. That's how we're called to live in Christ, with righteous character, with integrity, through the Holy Spirit within us. Absolutely, without question, that's how we're called to live. But I think Paul has another primary meaning here when he's talking about this breastplate of righteousness. So we ask, well, what is the righteousness he's talking about here? What's Paul talking of? Well, God's Word says that there are really... Essentially, basically three ways for you to deal with this longing we have for righteousness. It's a problem we all feel, the problem of being unpresentable, unapproved in some way. And and one way we can find a solution to that is just the secular way. Just looking for things in our life, apart from any religious things, that just will find meaning in that. Maybe it's your looks, maybe it's in your success in some area, whatever it would be. Not bad things in and of themselves, but trying to find righteousness in them. Or a second way is kind of the moralist or religious way. And, and that's by saying, I will be moral and, moral and religious enough that I feel like I've kind of earned presentability. But praise God, Scripture speaks of a third way. We call it Christ's way. What is Christ's way? Understand this, Listen. A follower of Christ is somebody who finally recognizes that this gospel is not me giving my religiosity, my righteousness to him, but it's God giving his righteousness to me. I'll tell you, in Scripture, there's almost no way for you to understand this particular remedy and solution unless you begin to grasp in some way what theologically is called imputation. Imputation. Would you just say the word with me? Imputation. Okay, what is imputation? Well, one place you can see it described is in Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. This is in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And listen to what Paul wrote in verse 21. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. He's speaking of Jesus there. So that in him, we might become what? The righteousness of God okay what does that mean I mean very clearly something happens imputation happens that's what it's saying I mean first of all it says God made him to be sin who knew no sin okay so picture it here's Jesus Christ on the cross and what does God do when Christ is on the cross it says God makes him sin okay what does that mean It means that Jesus, who really knew no sin, Jesus had never sinned, never disobeyed God. God made him sin. To put it another way, God declared Jesus sin. I mean, that means that in his being, Jesus was not sin. He knew no sin. So in one sense, actually, he's not a sinner, but legally before God, he is. And what did God do? God transferred liability for your broken, fallen, sinful record to Jesus. He imputed it, your sinful record, to Jesus. So Jesus is now liable for your record. That means that all the consequences of what you deserve fell on Jesus, all of it. And friends, that's just the first part of imputation, because then it says there's a second part of imputation. I mean, the first part, God made him to be no sin, Actually, Jesus isn't a sinner, but God declares him sin. Legally, he is sin. And then there's a second part. So that in him we might become, here it is, the righteousness of God. Just drink that in for a minute. So actually, you're not righteous, but legally before God, the day you receive Christ as Savior, kind of the same thing happens imputation you become liable for Jesus' record. Which means, listen, that the consequences of Jesus' perfect holiness, obedience, sinlessness, all that Jesus deserves falls on you. I mean, so the gospel is this. God treats believing sinners as if they'd done everything perfectly as Jesus had done. I mean, there's this amazing passage in Paul's letter to the church in Rome. and In Romans chapter 4, he gives a similar kind of description to try to bring it home in some way. In Romans 4, Paul says this. Romans 4, wait. In verse 4, listen to what Paul writes there. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as what? His due. Okay, let's just Apply this. The end of this week you go in for your paycheck at work, your boss gives you your paycheck and says, Here's a gift for me. You go, wait a second, what are you talking about? They, this isn't a gift. This is my due. Do- I worked for this, right? That's what Paul's saying. Meaning you earned your wages. And then this glorious truth. Look at verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted, it's credited as righteousness. I mean, just to understand, that is one of the most stark and amazing statements in all of Scripture. And really, it's very clear. I mean, that word justifies means to be counted as righteous, to make legally righteous, to make, in a sense, forensically righteous. It, it means this, that when you are declared righteous, when Jesus' righteousness comes upon you, is imputed upon you when you turn in faith to Jesus, you could not ever be more fully pleasing to God than you are then or throughout your life. You can't please God more by doing more good works. You are Christ's righteousness. That's who you are. And when does God do that? The moment you trust in one who justifies the ungodly. The moment you turn to Jesus. I mean, Paul is not saying, but you have to clean up your hearts first. And I don't know why, but it seems like many times, as clear as we try to put it, That attitude comes to the mind of so many. Individuals hear the reality of Jesus' calling. They hear the invitation to turn to Jesus. And the response within them is, okay, yeah, so I need to straighten up my life first. I have to make myself presentable to God, and then I'm going to come to Jesus. Can I just say, (laughs) no, not not at all, friends. You can't clean yourself up enough. (laughs) But the moment you turn to Jesus, the moment you turn to the one who justifies the ungodly, at that moment it says, you are given the righteousness of Jesus. (laughs) The standing of God himself, the son of God himself. When you go to God in prayer as a child of Christ, it's like Jesus himself is standing there. (laughs) Here's the thing. (laughs) Understand this. God's word tells us that this gospel, this good news of Jesus, it is far more than just being pardoned. All this is about far more than just forgiveness. I mean, those things are incredible. They're great. But the gospel of Jesus is about enabling you to walk into and live in and enjoy the presence of the holy, pure, mighty God of creation. To stand before that God as one who is worthy, holy, righteous, and pure in Christ. To know God couldn't get more pleased with you than you are in Christ. Do you get that? So our third question. Okay, so what does it mean for a follower of Jesus to put on this breastplate of Christ's righteousness. What does that mean? Can I tell you, friends? Be fully aware that is a battle and will be a battle in your life. In fact, here's how Paul described that in 2 Corinthians. He spoke of it in these terms, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and and verse 5. Paul says this, we destroy arguments, every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we do this, read it with me, take every thought captive to obey Christ. Other translations say we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ, to bring that thought in line with the reality of Christ. That's what it's speaking of here. So here's the thing. When lies and accusations fill your mind, I in your identity in Christ, you don't sit passively with that. With your mind, renew your mind and take those thoughts captive. Make them obedient to the gospel of Christ, right? It means you take those thoughts, oh man, I've screwed up so much, i messed up so much in this. Maybe you have, bring that in repentance to God. But understand, you are still a child of Christ. You are righteous before God. Take that thought against these lies that are coming from the pit of hell. That want to discourage you and tear down your identity in Jesus. Because the last thing that the enemy wants is for us to realize and walk in the reality of who we are in Christ. Or perhaps you're feeling, okay, but I'm just bone-dry spiritually. Maybe you're a new Christian, and maybe you felt real kind of close to God for a while, and now it just feels like things have dried up. And maybe you feel like, my prayer life, isn't that great? And I really, if I'm honest, I don't even feel that much love for God. I I don't have those same kinds of special feelings for Him. And I'll tell you, if, if that's what you're feeling, what's happening to you? I'll tell you this. The satanic accusations could be the ones hitting you saying, maybe all that stuff was in your head. It was just kind of spiritual talk. And understand in those moments, do you know what you're doing? Take that thought captive. You are letting your feelings be your righteousness. Understand? I mean, you're thinking, oh, I know I'm a Christian. I know God loves me. Why? Because I have all these wonderful feelings of closeness to him. I'll tell you, there are even many old hymns that speak against that type of perspective. In fact, one of the beautiful ones is, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood And what? righteousness. Then that line, I dare not trust the sweetest frame. We kind of just sing right through that line. Here's what Edward Mote, when he wrote that, I'm not going to trust the sweetest frame of mind I have. I'm not going to put my faith in the fact that I feel really good about God today. I'm not going to put my trust in just feelings because they will come and go. I dare not trust in the sweetest frame. Where do I trust? I'm going to wholly lean on what? Jesus' name. I'm going to rest in reality as feelings come and go. I'm going to rest on him. I'm going to rest on Jesus Christ being my breastplate. Amen. Can I give you a perfect application of this? Come to this table. Come today and physically tangibly be reminded as we break bread, the body of Christ was broken for me. Receive this together. Well, as we take the cup, Drink the cup and be reminded the blood of Christ was poured out for me. There is nothing that I can do to gain more of the pleasure of God than what I have wholly, fully in Jesus Christ. I invite you to come to the table. And if you're not at that place yet with Jesus, boy, there's no embarrassment in passing these elements by. We're just thankful you're here on your spiritual journey. But for those who wish, I invite you to come. Maybe for the first time you're saying, I want him, I I want him. So I invite you to come, let me pray, and then let's, in our minds, run to the table. Amen? (laughs) Let me pray. Father, we come. And again, I pray by a work of your spirit, you would cut away the junk that maybe it's from our own minds, maybe it's from our flesh, maybe it's from the world around us, or perhaps it's even from the enemy. Lies, cloudiness about what you've given to us. I pray that even as we receive this meal, you would feed, encourage, nourish us in Christ and the wonder of what you've blessed us with fully in him. So we come in here as your children, and all God's people again say, Amen. amen.